We're going to finish up Jesus' sermon today from Luke chapter 6. So, as we get ready to do that, let's ask God's help. Lord, it's vain for me to try to speak without your assistance. Lord, I just ask that you would come and, Lord, would you give unction? Would you give help? Lord, would you send your spirit here at this very moment to give grace to the speaker and to those who hear? Lord, may your words come alive to somebody today. I pray you would strengthen your church and save those that are lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Who's going to heaven? <laughs> well, I didn't mean that specifically. I meant generically. Generically. Maybe I should ask it a different way. What kind of people are going to go to heaven? We are. Believers. Believers. Um, pretty much, pretty much uh, the impression I get when I talk to people and kind of survey them <clears throat> is that most people think that if you are religious of some sort, and if you're sincere, you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a Protestant or a Catholic or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. It really doesn't matter. As long as you're sincere and you're religious, then you're going to make it to heaven. And just about every religion promises some kind of heaven or nirvana or paradise after death. So that's the, the thing that's held out in their religion what we want to try to do today is answer that question. Who is going to go to heaven? What kind of person is going to be there? Other people narrow it down a little bit. They say, no, it's not just any religious person. It's someone who believes in Jesus as their Savior. So that would eliminate people like Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews. But it would include people like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and any other sub sort of Christian group. Is that true? Is that true? Jesus was even more narrow than that. Jesus was even more narrow. In our text today, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And then he gave an illustration of two builders that built two different houses. And he said, One guy built a house on the bedrock of a rock, a rock foundation. And when the flood came, his house stood. The other guy built his house on the sand. And when the floods came, it was demolished. And he said, the guy that built the house on the rock, this is the one that not only hears my words, but acts on them. The guy whose house was demolished, he heard the words, but he didn't act on them. So let me ask you again, according to Jesus, what kind of a person is going to go to heaven? It's a person that hears Jesus' words and does them, obeys them, acts on them. It's not a hearer only of the Word of God. It's someone that earnestly from the heart seeks to apply the words of Jesus to his life and live them out. Now, we're not talking about salvation by works. We're talking about salvation by a true saving faith. 
And a true saving faith always will produce a life of works, a life of holiness. Always, without any exception. So, think with me for just a minute. Who was Jesus talking to when he made these words, when he made these comments? What kind of people was he talking to? What religion were they? They were Jewish. And they were sincere Jews, weren't they? They were passionate Jews. These are people who believe the entire Old Testament. They worshipped the God of the Old Testament. They prayed to Him. They were sincere. They were passionate. They were zealous. But yet Jesus tells them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Not only were they good Jews, but they actually believed that Jesus was the Lord. And they called Him the Lord. They made a profession that He was the Lord. But Jesus looks them in the face and he says, unless you obey me, you're building your house on the sand, and when the day of judgment comes, it is going to be demolished and ruined. So this is a, it's a difficult text today because it goes counterculture to everything that we hear on the news media, to where the, where the popular person on the street's going to tell you. Jesus does not speak the same language that we speak. Jesus was different. Our trend today is inclusivism, isn't it? We want to include everybody. We want everyone to go to heaven. And nowhere is that more uh, to be seen than if you go to a funeral. I've been to a lot of funerals over the last 54 years of my life. And I've never yet been to a funeral where the preacher stood up and said, I'm sorry to tell you that that man's in hell today. <laughs> Even though probably most of them were. Everybody is in heaven. They've all gone to a better place, right? No matter how they live, they can be an atheist, they can be a Muslim, doesn't matter. They can be irreligious, they can be a murderer on death row. But once they die, they're in heaven. They're in a better place. It's just our, our nature, isn't it? We want everybody to make it. But the fact is that not everybody's going to make it. What did Jesus say? Narrow is the way that leads to life. And what? Few, few, few are those who find it. Narrow, few. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. They're not my words. He said those words. So, we need to pay special attention today to make sure we're some of those people that make it to heaven. That we're not deceived. There'll be millions that will be shocked and deceived on Judgment Day when they were cast out of God's presence, thinking that everything was good between them and God, and they come to the end of their life and find out, I really wasn't a true believer at all. Jesus is winding up his sermon. He starts that sermon in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Do you remember he starts off with four blesseds and four woes? So, he's telling his disciples, these are the kind of people that are truly blessed. They're poor, they're hungry, um, they're sorrowful, they weep, and they're hated and insulted by others. Those are the ones that are truly blessed because they do all those things for the sake of the Son of Man. Here are the people that are truly miserable. They're the ones that are rich, well-fed, comfortable, and popular because they have rejected Christ and live on their own. Even though they have everything in this life, they have got nothing in the life to come. And then Jesus addresses His disciples and He says to them, you need to have an, an unearthly kind of a love. 
When you have these enemies that hate you and insult you and want to say all these derogatory things about you or actively do evil to you, you need to love them. You need to actively do good to them. It's not good enough just to avoid them and walk away from them. You need to think of ways to bless them and to pray for them and to do, do good for them. And on top of that, you can't judge them. In fact, you need to judge yourself much more severely than you judge others. You need to take the log out of your own eye before you start taking little splinters out of other people's eyes. And now he comes to the end of his sermon, and he's bringing forth some application. And the application is, it's no good just to listen to what I've just told you. You've got to act on it. And it's going to make the difference in your life between heaven and hell. And he gives two illustrations. Two different houses, and those houses represent our life. Everybody's building a house. You're building a house, I'm building a house. That house is our life. And that life is going to be tested one day. There's going to come a great storm, a great flood that's going to burst against your life. What do you think that storm is? The judgment of God. We are all fast approaching the judgment day of God. And the life that we have built is going to be tested whether it was true or false, whether it's built on sand or rock. Now, as we work our way through the passage, we want to look, first of all, at the similarities between these two guys that are building a house, and then the differences between the two guys that are building the house. Okay? First of all, the similarities. They both build houses. We'll start off there. They both built houses. Now, what's the purpose of a house? Okay, to live in it. But why would you want to live in a house rather than outdoors? Shelter. It provides shelter from the rain, the snow, when it's real hot outside, you can keep it cool inside. When it's real cold outside, you can keep it kind of warm inside. It's a nice place to be, isn't it? It's much better than living out in the elements. So the purpose of a house is to provide shelter from the elements. If we build our lives right, we will be protected from the storm of the wrath of God that will be unleashed on the ungodly one day. If we don't build our life right, we will have to face that storm in its full fury against our own life. And all of us right now are preparing for eternity. The life that we're living is a house that we're building, and that house will either fall, and we will be cast into hell for eternity, or it will stand, and we will have entrance into heaven for all eternity. So that's the first similarity. Both of them build houses. Secondly, both of those houses looked sturdy. Now, so to the casual observer, he's looking at both houses. They're built right next to each other. One's built on the foundation of a rock. One's on the sand. He looks at them. What does he see? They look pretty much identical to him, don't they? Because he can't see the hidden part. He can't see the foundation. They look nice and neat and attractive and strong and sturdy. Wow, it's a beautiful house. But he doesn't understand that it has no foundation. So... Nobody can look on your life or my life and know with absolute certainty if we're building on the foundation or not. God knows. But I can't tell with absolute certainty about anybody else. The hidden part, the foundation, is what made the difference between this house standing and that house falling. And so we can all look good on the outside. We can say the right things. We can carry Bibles. 
We can go to church. We look good. But the, the real question is, is my life built on the rock or is it built on sand? To build your life on a rock means that I am going to follow Jesus with my life. He's told me what to do. I'm going to do it. You guys get that. Okay, that's what a real disciple is. He's someone that does actually, not just with his ears, listen. He does more than listen to Jesus. He actually does what Jesus says. So if Jesus says to tell other people about him, he does it. If Jesus tells him to pray, he learns to pray. If Jesus tells him to use his money for the kingdom, he does that. You see, he actually does what Jesus says. And there's a huge difference between a lot of people that attend church and carry Bibles and look good on the outside and a real follower of Jesus. So, they both build houses. They both, both of those houses look sturdy. And then thirdly, both of those houses faced a great storm. Every person alive, every person who's ever lived is going to face the judgment of God. There's no escape from that. Over in Revelation chapter 6, the Bible describes some people who want to escape somehow. And they cry out to the mountains, fall on us, rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But there is no place for them to hide, no place to run. In fact, over in Revelation 20 verse 11, this is what John saw. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So earth and heaven flee away, and there's God, and there am I, and there's nothing I can do about it. If I'm lost, I can't hide. I can't escape. There's nowhere to go. There's no excuses I can make. There's no justifications I can make. It's just me before God, and He displays my life, and He shows how I've lived, and I'm judged by my deeds. In Acts 17.31, Scripture says, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. He's going to judge the world, all the world. Romans 14.12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Or Jesus' words in John 5.28, an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So let me just summarize for you. All of us are building a house. It's our life. Everybody's life can look okay from the outside. The real question is, what are you building on? Because all of us are going to face the judgment of God one day. And He's going to, he's going to discern, He's going to expose to us whether we built our house on rock or built our house on sand. Now let's look at the differences. There are some differences between these two builders. First of all, only one man built his house on the rock. Did you notice that in our text? It says he dug deep 
and he built his house on the foundation of the rock. The other guy just threw his house up really fast. See, building a house is not like building a shed. Anybody ever built a shed? <laughs> you don't plan to spend much time in a shed. You don't plan to live in it. And you don't really plan for it to last that long. But when you build a house, you do plan to spend lots of time in it, and you, you plan for that thing to last you a long, good long time. And so some people really invest a lot of money in their homes. They might put uh, granite countertops on there, or you know, really nice fine hardwood cabinetry, or brass doorknobs. But if that person puts all that money into his house, but he builds his house on sand, he's just throwing his money away. Because when the first storm hits, it's all going to be through. And if we live our lives in disobedience to Jesus Christ, we're throwing our lives away. Because when the storm hits, we'll be cast away from Jesus' presence forever. Now, you think, well, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? For somebody to build a house but not build it on a foundation. Who would do that? Who would be so dumb to do that? Well, number one, a person who thinks it's too hard of work would do that. And it is hard work to build down to the foundation. Because, I mean, he says he dug deep. He had to dig all the way down to the rock and then lay the house's foundation on that rock. That takes time. It takes a lot of effort. And the man who just built his house in the sand was a lazy man. He wanted the easy way out. He didn't want to go to all the expense and the pains of actually building his house on that foundation. And you know, obedience to Jesus is not easy. It's the hard way. It's not the easy way. It takes pains and labor and it takes all of that. Uh, one of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, puts it this way. To lay aside pride and self-righteousness, to crucify the rebellious flesh, to put on the mind of Christ, to take up the cross daily, to count all things but loss for Christ's sake, all this may be hard work. But this religion will stand. The Christianity which combines good profession and good practice is a building that will not fall. So, one guy, he may not have built his house on the rock because it was just too hard to work. Another reason he may not have done that is because it would just take too long. He wants the immediate benefits of being able to live in his house, arrange all of his furniture, sit down on the couch and have a glass of iced tea, and he looks out of his window and he sees his neighbor, and his house isn't even above ground yet. He's still digging his hole. But look at me. I'm enjoying the benefits of my new house. Well, the person who does that is short-sighted, isn't he? He's only living for the right now. He's got no future in view. He's not living for what's around the bend, what's coming around the bend up front. He's living for what he can get out of it right now. And I think most people in the world, that's how they live. They're living for what they can get now. And God's word to us is to live for eternity, to live in light of the judgment that is coming. Invest in the eternal now rather than the temporal. I keep telling you this every week, but that's what God says over and over. You see, when this guy built his house on the sand, it wasn't raining. The riverbeds were dry. Flood? What flood? He didn't see any flood, right? 
And so he built his house accordingly. But the wise man knows that in Palestine it's a very dry climate, but occasionally you get these torrential rains that come through and those riverbeds fill up and they begin washing away everything in its path. And he knows that it's just a matter of time until those floods come. So the wise builder builds deep and he builds on the rock. So we may not want to follow Jesus and really obey Jesus because it is hard work and because we're short-sighted. We're thinking of only what we can get out of this lifetime right now. But notice, secondly, only one man's house was left standing. Only one. The foolish man lost everything he had. The ruin that he experienced was total. Total loss. His house was demolished. He's never going to get it back again. In fact, there's no second chances. He's got no more houses. He's done. And what Jesus is pointing to us today is that we're all going to stand before judgment. And there's only one type of person that's going to stand. And if you're not that type of person, your life is going to be destroyed and you're going to experience eternal ruin. He's talking about heaven and hell. The house that stands is heaven. The house that falls is hell. And then thirdly, another difference between these builders is that only one man acted on the words of Jesus Christ. Look at the text. Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. There is only one difference between these two guys. They both heard the words of Jesus, right? One acted, one didn't. That's the only difference. What's the difference between heaven and hell? It's the difference between a person who lives by what Jesus says and by a person who simply hears what Jesus said and doesn't live it. That's the difference. That's the difference between whether we will spend eternity in heaven or hell. Now, I know when I talk like this, you're probably thinking, but Brian, aren't we saved by grace? Apart from any works? Absolutely. But I want to tell you that the nature of true saving faith is that it produces works. You can never divorce sanctification from justification. Never. A man who is truly justified in the sight of God will always be sanctified. Why? How do we know that to be the case? What always happens when a person is justified? Who comes in? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies. He purges. He purifies. He makes the believer into the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 8 says, We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So let me bring out three different aspects of application this morning. Number one, realize this morning that many professing Christians will end up in hell. It's just the sober, honest truth. Many people who think that they are Christians will end up in hell, according to Jesus' words. Jesus said, many call me Lord, Lord, 
But they don't do what I say, and they're building their house on the sand, and it's going to fall in the judgment. Now, notice what they say to Jesus. Lord, Lord. They repeat that word twice for emphasis. Lord, Lord. They're not mumbling it up under their breath. They're not whispering this. They're crying out loudly, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter what you say if your life doesn't back up what you say. You can say anything you want. Words are cheap. I want to see someone who's serious about following me and doing what I tell them to do. That's a real disciple. In the parallel passage over in Matthew 7, this is what Jesus said. Many, notice that first word there, not a few, not the tiny proportion, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, not I knew you at one time, but somehow lost track of you. No, I never knew you. I never had a saving relationship with you. Depart from me. Who? You who practice lawlessness. They didn't obey Jesus. They practice lawlessness. They depart from him for all eternity. Even though they did religious things, they prophesied, they went to church, they cast out demons, they worked miracles in his name, but they weren't saved. They're lost forever. Folks, this is a scary thought. Because all of us make a profession of faith, don't we? Well, how many of us in this room are genuine? How many of us are building on the rock? How many are going to stand? Listen to the words from Ezekiel 33, verse 31. Here, God is speaking to Ezekiel. He says, They come to you as people come, and sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after their grain. Or I'm that should be gain. <laughs> Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So he's describing people that like to hear the voice of Ezekiel the prophet. They enjoy coming and listening to him preach. Maybe some of you enjoy coming to church and listening to sermons. But it's like going to a concert for you. It's like listening to a beautiful voice. Someone who can really sing well. Man, I, I enjoy going to church. It makes me feel good inside. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. If you're coming to church for entertainment value. We don't come to be entertained. We come to meet to hear the voice of God and then with all our might seek to obey Him. With a humble heart before Him. A lot of people attend good churches, good Bible churches. They preach the Word of God, and they attend uh, regularly. Every Sunday they're there. They carry Bibles around. Jesus is saying people like that are going to end up in hell because they didn't obey Him. Their faith wasn't real. It was a false faith, spurious. We go down to the light rail here at Zinfandel and Folsom quite a bit, and we witness to people, and I meet people that would meet this description all of the time. We can start witnessing them about Jesus and they say, hey, I agree with you. Yeah, I think Jesus is the Son of God and I believe in Him and I'm going to heaven. But while they're telling you that, you can tell them that they're drunk or they're loaded or they're, they have their girlfriend there and they've just told you that they're living together. 
and you go, well, this doesn't add up. They're practicing lawlessness, claiming to be going to heaven. And I believe, of course I can't know statistically the number, but I believe there are probably millions of people around the world that think they're going to heaven that are going to be absolutely shocked on Judgment Day. Because they never were a true follower. They never really got serious about their life. They built on sand. Their whole life was on sand. Nothing deeper than that. Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, notice who he's speaking to. He was saying to those Jews, what? Who had believed on him. <laughs> so here are Jews that believe in Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, if you continue in my word, then you're a real disciple. You can believe for a little while, and you can be a false disciple. But if you continue in my word, now what does it mean to continue in the words of Jesus? Does it mean just to continue going to church every Sunday and listen to them? It's talking about practicing them. It's talking about actually putting shoe leather to the words of Jesus and living them out. Let me just be really, really clear, if I haven't been already. Only those people who demonstrate their faith by obedience to Jesus Christ are going to heaven. That's just what Jesus said. That's not, I'm not making that up. That's just what Jesus said. Remember, right before he said this part about the two builders, he said that a tree is known by its fruit. And a good tree will always produce good fruit. A bad tree is always going to produce bad fruit. So, if you've been born again, you're a good tree. You've been regenerated. The, you have a new nature. The Spirit is inside of you producing new life. You're going to produce good fruit. You're going to obey Jesus if you're a good tree. But if you live your life without obeying Jesus, you never were a good tree. You were always a bad tree. And that's why bad fruit resulted day after day after day. You see, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. Okay? Nobody is going to perfectly obey Jesus in this life. Nobody. So it's, we're not looking to say, okay, you've got to perfectly keep the commands of Jesus, but is it the direction of your life to obey Him? And when you see in the Word of God that I'm not obeying Him, do you repent? Do you confess that to Him? Do you pray that the Spirit of God would so fill you that you would be a different person, that you would change and be transformed? See, that's the kind of person that is a true disciple. He continues in the Word. So there's the first application I want to make to you. Realize that many professing Christians will end up in hell. Secondly, reject the teaching of easy believism. Anybody know what I'm talking about by easy believism? You've probably heard this. The teaching of easy believism says that obedience to Jesus is optional. It's like when you go to buy a car, the, the guy, the salesman says, okay, I've got certain options to choose from. Would you like to have air conditioning or not? And I remember buying a brand new car in the Bay Area, and he says, well, you're probably not going to need air conditioning here. It's, it never gets that hot. And so like a dummy, I went, okay, I don't want to spend the $2,000 in air conditioning. Yeah, just give me the car without the AC. What a stupid mistake that was. <laughs> but, but that was an option. I could still get in my car and go from point A to point B, right? It just wasn't as comfortable. And the people that teach easy believism say, you can still get to heaven without obeying Jesus. You just want to have as comfortable a ride when you're trying to get there. 
It's important for you to obey Jesus, but it's not necessary. You can live in disobedience to Jesus your whole life. You can be a carnal Christian, and you can end up in heaven. See, they say the requirements for being saved is that you, well, ABC. You've all seen the tract ABC, haven't you? Admit, believe, confess. Just admit you're a sinner, believe Jesus died for your sins, confess that he's your Savior. Bingo, you're in. But there is no requirement that there's a transformed life proving that your faith in him was actually real. Now, where did all this come from? Where did teaching like that arise from? Folks, it, it, we didn't see this before about 1830. For about the first 1830 years of the history of the church, no one, no one taught this, no one believed this. But around this time, certain evangelistic methods began to be introduced. And these evangelistic methods were such that they said, if you just make a decision, you're saved. So raise your hand if you, want to be a, if you want to be a Christian. Just raise your hand. Okay, you're in. You're eternally secure. Never doubt it again. You're going to heaven. So walk this aisle, stand up, raise your hand, sign a card. That's it. That's all you've got to do. So because of this decisionistic mentality, we have all these supposed converts flooding into the church, but yet they don't look like converts. A year later, they're no different than they were before. There's no transformed life. And so there has to be some kind of an explanation to account for how you can have so many converts that aren't converted. They're not changed. And so we came up with an explanation. It's the carnal Christian theory. And this theory says there are two types of Christians. You've got spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. So if you don't want to be a spiritual Christian, you can still go to heaven and be a carnal Christian. <laughs> that means that you never have to experience any life-changing power of God. You never have to become holy. You can accept Jesus as your Savior and never respond to Him as Lord, and you're still in. Everything is good. This is the doctrine of easy believism. And I have to say that I think the motive behind the people that teach this is probably good. I think their motive is that they want to protect the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. And they believe that if acknowledging and responding to Jesus as Lord is necessary to be saved, then that's mixing grace with works. But folks, I don't think it is. It's just that we have to understand what grace produces. We have to understand the power of grace. If you have the real grace of God come down from heaven, invade your life, it's not going to result in just making a decision and living the same life you ever lived. If I had witnessed to Angela and we've gone through the ABC, admit, believe, confess, and I never saw a changed life, I would tell her, Angela, I don't think you're saved. Because to be a, a saved person is going to live a different life. They're going to start hating sin. They're going to start loving righteousness. They're going to be serious about following Jesus. And if that doesn't happen, you didn't experience the grace of God. You may think that you did, but you didn't. So that's the carnal Christian doctrine. We need to reject this teaching. Let me just read to you from Ephesians chapter 5. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. For this you know with certainty. I'm afraid a lot of people don't know this with certainty, but he wants us to. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you hear him? People that live lives of immorality or covetousness or sensuality, or in the preceding context, he's talking about coarse jesting, lewd talking, just an impure life. People who persist in practicing a life like that, the wrath of God is going to come on them. It doesn't matter if they claim to be a Christian or not. God's wrath is coming on them. The judgment's going to fall. And he says, I want you to know with certainty, let no one deceive you with empty words. So if someone tries to deceive you with empty words by saying, all you have to do is accept Jesus, and even if your life never changes, that's okay. You're eternally secure. You're in. Reject that teaching. It's a lie. It, it's contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Third point of application. Ready yourself for the coming judgment. Because the storm's coming. Are you getting ready? Or are you just building your house in the sand? Are you digging deep, folks? Are you digging deep? Are you, are you going after that rock? Are you building on the rock of a true follower of Jesus rather than just a professor, someone who professes faith in Jesus? You say, well, Brian, you've talked a lot about obedience to Jesus, but what are you talking about? What commands of Jesus are we supposed to be obeying? Well, let me start at the very beginning. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled... The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the starting place. Repent and believe in the gospel. Folks, if you haven't repented, you haven't even started the Christian life yet. Repentance is at the very beginning. And if you have not come to a place where you're sorry for your sin and are turning from it and asking God to make you a different person, you're not even at the gate yet. Okay, so repentance is at the starting point and faith in the gospel. Let me try to explain repentance and faith. Repentance is to turn from something. Faith is to turn to something. They're part of the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. So let's say your God was money or sex or possessions or power or a certain relationship. Okay? And you were facing that thing. You were turned toward it. You were chasing after that thing. To repent means you turn away from that, whatever it is. And everybody's got one. Everybody's got a false god, an idol. Turning away from that and seeing that Jesus is your answer and finding your fulfillment in Him and running to Him. See, repentance is turning. Faith is cleaving to Jesus Christ. So that is the very beginning of the Christian life. And once you've done that, you're going to discover that the, God's Word has an awful lot to say about all kinds of areas of our life. It tells us how we are to use our money, how to use our time, how to uh, appropriately involve ourselves in sexual relationships, what's inappropriate and what's appropriate. It tells us about prayer, honesty, integrity, worship, loving others. And I don't have the time to go through all of these various commands, but the Bible's filled with this stuff. And so to be a true follower of Jesus is to take the command seriously, asking God for grace and the power of the Spirit to begin walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. Anybody here ever see that movie, The Perfect Storm? 
you know, the 100 foot waves, this, this fishing boat is out there and it gets caught in this gigantic storm and these 100 foot waves are crashing down. We are headed for something even bigger than that, the perfect storm. We're headed towards God. And folks, I hope you don't have just a, a tiny, teeny weeny little view of God. I hope you have a little view of yourself and a great big view of God because that's what's true. God is huge. God is infinite in His power, in His knowledge, in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, in His grace, and in His mercy. He's huge. And we're headed towards Him. It's like being cast into the mouth of a volcano. He's the volcano. We're, we're headed towards judgment. And so it would behoove us to prepare ourselves for that day. Let me read to you from Revelation 20. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Notice that. They're judged according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what is ultimately so important here is that your name is written in the book of life. And if it is, on that day when God plays your life, and he reveals the kind of person that you were, you're going to see a life of obedience to Jesus backing up that profession of faith. It'll be there. It'll be there. You say, well, Brian, how can I know if my name is in the book of life? How can I know? I want to know if it's there or not. Should I climb up, get a real tall ladder and climb up into heaven and look over Gabriel's shoulder and look in that book of life and see if my name's listed? Wouldn't that be nice to be able to do that? We can't do that, can we? But there is another way. And Peter tells us how we can do that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us, verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now why are we to pursue all these things so passionately and so zealously? Let's keep reading. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, isn't that interesting, are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now here's what I really want you to focus in on. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. Do you see the point? As we obey Jesus, we make our calling and election certain. You want to know if God has chosen you from the beginning of time to be His child? Do you want to know if He's truly called you into His family? Called you by His grace? 
You know that because the Spirit produces a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so he says, cooperate with the Spirit. Be all the more diligent to make certain that He has called you and has chosen you. As long as you practice a life like that, you're never going to stumble. And so I want to exhort you, prepare for the judgment. Get serious about the life you're building. Get serious about obeying Jesus. That means tomorrow morning when you get up, let's spend some time alone with Jesus. Open up the Word. Speak to me, Lord. Give me the power to live this thing out. Lord, I love you. Cause your spirit to produce new life in me, Lord. See, it's a serious-minded disciple of Jesus that Jesus is looking for. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a sobering passage this morning. Lord, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We don't want to hear those words, Lord. Lord, if any of us this morning are deceived about our standing, would you undeceive us? Let us honestly take stock of our lives to see whether it is the habit of our life to obey Jesus or to disobey. To act on his words or simply to ignore them. Lord, convict us where we need convicting. Whether it's in the areas of saying things we shouldn't say, being prideful, looking at things we ought not look at, doing things we have no business doing. Lord, all of that. We pray you'd convict us of things. That we might repent, that you might purge us, that you might prove that you're at work in our lives. And Lord, in all of this, we remember that our real only hope is Jesus. Left up to us, Lord, we would, we would all fall. We would all be lost. We'd all be damned. But Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners. And even if we're the chief, He can save us. We are great sinners, Lord, but we have a great Savior. Jesus has died for sin. He's risen to give us new life. He's king over all this universe. And Lord, He is our hope. So Lord, would you just take these lives of ours and do in them and through them that would you bring glory and honor to you. And we pray all this in your holy, blessed name. Amen.